Well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And Lord willing, Lord willing, we are going to make it to the end of that chapter today. Uh, It's only taken us seven weeks to get through the first two chapters, so you do the math. We've got 24 chapters in this book. Uh, (laughs) We could be here for a while. Um, What a great study, though. I'm enjoying it so much personally, just loving looking closer at the life of, of Jesus. And when we get to the end of this chapter today, at the end of chapter two, not only are we you know, ending that chapter, we're actually coming to the end of the very first sort of major section of Luke's gospel. Uh, in Luke's gospel, there are really five major sections as I've sort of laid it out. You have the infancy in the childhood years of Jesus in chapters one and two. After that, and the next time we, we open our Bibles and, and study in Luke, uh, we're gonna start in chapter three, and from chapter three till mid, about midway through chapter four, looking at sort of the preparation time of Jesus for his public ministry. Then from chapter four to near the end of chapter nine, gonna be looking at his, his ministry in the area of Galilee. So all that takes place in in those chapters will happen up in the area of Galilee in Israel. And then the longest section of the book from chapter 9, verse 51 till 1944 is the ministry of Jesus as he's making his way from Galilee in the north back to Jerusalem for the final time. This is his final visit to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, And then from 1945 to the end of the book, uh, Luke writes about Jesus' ministry while he's in Jerusalem, you know, the, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So that's sort of the layout for, for Luke's gospel. And, you know, I mentioned this last week, but I'll, I'll say it again, that when it comes to the infancy and childhood years, not only does Luke not write a lot about it, but really there isn't much written about it at all. In fact, Luke writes more than anyone about the infancy and the childhood of, of Jesus, and it's just these first you know, two chapters. And uh, when we turn from the end of chapter two to chapter three, there's gonna be an 18-year time lapse. So what will take, actually next week is the ministry fair, so it'll be the week after that. What will pass is two weeks in our lives uh, will be 18 years in the story of the life of Jesus. The next time we, we come together, Jesus is gonna be 30 years old. In fact, actually, the overwhelming majority of what we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focuses on just three to three and a half years in Jesus' life. You know, most everything that's written in the Gospels is just about those final three, three and a half years, which makes these stories here, these infancy and these childhood stories, really special. Now, Matthew writes a little bit about the infancy of Jesus, but only Luke, only Luke talks about the childhood of Jesus. So the the verses that we're looking at today are the only uh, records that we have of of the life of Jesus when he was a child. And this story is pretty special. Because in this story, I mean, not only do we get our only glimpse at the life of Jesus as a child, but in this story, we get to see that even at the age of 12 years old, Jesus already had a firm grasp on who he is, that he is the son of God. At 12 years old, Jesus had a firm grasp on his identity, and he also had a very firm grasp on on what he was here to do. He understood why he was here. He was here to do the will of the Father. He knew that at 12 years old. Some of us, I mean, I'm 40-something, and, <laughs> and I still struggle to remember that I have a purpose for being here, and that is to do the will of the Father. Jesus understood it perfectly at 12 years old. Well, last week, as we were wrapping things up, In verses 39 and 40, we read these words. When Mary, or excuse me, when they rather, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to uh, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, Jesus, 
grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And we talked about it this last week, but, but Luke seems to be going out of his way in this chapter, in chapter 2, to emphasize the fact that everything was being done in accordance with the law. He wants his reader to understand that, that, that from his birth to his death, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He, he never violated a, a single commandment of God. He was completely sinless. But something I mentioned last week that I think is worth noting is that Mary and Joseph played a pretty huge role in his fulfillment, at least at the beginning, right? I mean, did Jesus bring himself to the temple to be dedicated at 40 days old? No, his mom and his dad brought him to the temple to be dedicated. Did, did Jesus you know, make sure that he was circumcised at eight days old? No, of course not. Mary and Joseph were familiar with the teachings of the law, and they made sure that they were following everything according to the law. They played a huge role in that. And Luke tells us that after they had done everything in accordance with the law, they returned to their hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And it was there in Nazareth, which was, we talked about this early on in this series, but Nazareth was really like a nowheresville, right? It was a town that was really obscure. And if anything, Nazareth kind of had a mm, questionable reputation, right? Nothing good comes from Nazareth was the saying of the day, right? But this is where God chose to raise his son under the care of Mary and Joseph. You know, I was thinking about this as parents, as parents, were Mary and Joseph, they weren't perfect, right? They weren't perfect parents. But they did everything within their power to raise Jesus to know, love, and serve God the Father, didn't they? You know, and that's the best that we can offer to our children, isn't it? You know? And it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, right? His parents didn't have a lot of money. But what they did have, they gave him. They modeled faithful service to the Lord. Last Sunday, we had a, we had a baby dedication here. Um, I, went, I watched that on YouTube. Those kids were adorable, uh, were they not? Um, and some of you, if you were sitting maybe over on this side, uh, you couldn't necessarily see it, but maybe on the video you can, but little Clive kept grabbing my hand when I was sitting. He kept reaching over and grabbing my hand. It was, it was adorable. And as part of that baby dedication last week, we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. These are famous verses in the Old Testament. In, in Judaism, these verses are known as the Shema, the Shema. And that's taken from the first word in verse 4, which is Shema, which is to hear or to listen. And uh, we had ordered a, a gift for the, for the families that were having their babies dedicated. We got them a, a little plaque. Uh, and unfortunately, they came in on Monday. So we weren't able to give these to them last week, but we're giving those out today. Um, written in Hebrew and in English, the words of the Shema is a reminder for those families of the commitment that they made to raise their kids this way. Let's listen to the words of Deuteronomy 6 once again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you will teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the commandments... And, and a life of, of following God was to be part, every part of their life. When they, when they rise up and when they lie down, when they're eating dinner, they were to include the Lord in every aspect of their lives, taking every opportunity to instruct their children in the ways of God. And I believe that as, as devout and faithful Jews, Joseph and Mary would have taken these commands in the Shema very, very seriously. 
no doubt, there, there is no doubt in my mind that Joseph and Mary did everything within their power to raise Jesus to know, love, and follow God. I believe that they, they probably studied the Bible together, the scriptures. I believe they probably worked together to memorize portions of scripture. You know, I think sometimes when we think of the baby Jesus, we ignore the fact that the text clearly says that he grew physically. He grew in knowledge and understanding. Jesus wasn't a, a, an eight-week-old baby who had the whole, the whole Bible memorized. He grew in his knowledge. He grew in his understanding of who he is and what he was here to do. And he grew in a way that he was uncomplicated by the effects of sin. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine for a moment how quickly someone might grow and develop in their spiritual understanding and their gifts if they didn't wrestle in the same way that we all do with this sin nature? Jesus never sinned. His relationship with God was unclouded by all of that. And so he grew rapidly, I believe. And I think we're going to see that in today's passage. At the age of 12, Jesus is, is, is a, he's a young man on a mission. He's a young man on a, on a mission. You know, Joseph and Mary, they were not perfect parents. They weren't. They were not perfect parents, even if they were raising a perfect child. That must have been so intimidating, by the way, <laughs> you know, to raise a perfect child. I mean, there's the whole temptation towards pride, right? Because as parents, we like to take a lot of credit for our kids' successes, don't we? We don't want to take any of the blame for their failures, though. <laughs> Just all the credit for their successes. Boy, Joseph and Mary had a lot to brag about. Like, I don't know what's wrong with your kid. Look at mine. You know, <laughs> he's amazing. But I really do believe that they provided a godly home for the Son of God to grow up in. And one of the ways that Mary and Joseph would have modeled faithful service to God was through their obedience of observing the Passover. Let's begin reading our text this morning in verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now, as many of you know, in, in Judaism, there are seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. There are, are four feasts in the spring, and there are three in the fall. These are all tied around the, the agricultural cycle of planting and harvest. And uh, you can read about these, these feasts in Leviticus chapter 23 and the command to observe these feasts. But three of these feasts were appointed as what are referred to as pilgrimage feasts. And Leviticus chapter three, 23 talks about the idea that, that all Jewish men who were able were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts. There was the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where there was to be no leaven inside the house for a, for a full week. There was the Feast of uh, Weeks, and uh, also known as Pentecost. And then there was the Feast of Booths uh, in the fall, which was uh, one of the fall feasts. Now, over time, over time, three of the spring feasts became collectively referred to as the Passover. So when, when, when a Jew was saying, we're going up to observe the Passover... What they were saying is that we're, we're going up to Jerusalem and we're going there to observe the three feasts that happened during this time period. It's a very fast one feast, two feasts, three feasts. You start with Passover. Immediately the next day is the week-long uh, feast in celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on day two, on day two is the Feast of First Fruits. So packed within one week were these three feasts that they were commanded to observe. And so Mary and Joseph, are, they're going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We should understand this as them traveling up to observe these three feasts in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time this morning to explore each of the, the seven feasts and, and to talk about you know, what they commemorated, you know, what they celebrated, and, and how each of these feasts actually foreshadowed and pointed towards 
the mission that the Messiah was going to accomplish. Um, it's a fascinating study, and I highly recommend that you do it. Um, just Google you know, Jesus and, and the feasts, uh, and, and it's a fascinating study. But I do want to take a moment this morning just to look at the Passover, right? Because that's the context of the passage that we're looking at this morning. So in the book of Exodus, going all the way back, second book of the Bible, we read the story about the Jewish people being enslaved in Egypt. Actually, we just finished a study on the life of Joseph, right? And in that study, we saw how God brought his people from living up in Canaan down into Egypt, right? Well, after Joseph died, right, time passes and in and, and years turn into decades, which turns into centuries, and Joseph is forgotten. And eventually, the Jews became slaves in Egypt. And they cried out to God. They cried out, deliver us. And God sent a man by the name of Moses. God sends Moses down to Egypt to rescue his people and to bring them out of slavery. There's just one problem. Pharaoh in Egypt doesn't want to let God's people leave. He's perfectly content to keep them there as slaves, right? So God said, well, if you're not going to let my people go, then this is, this is how it's going to play out. God's going to send a, a series of plagues on the people of Egypt. And uh, they were severe. There were, there were some tough, tough uh, circumstances that the people of Egypt had to live through. But the final plague... The final plague was the worst, and, and it was the one that finally caused Pharaoh to say, fine, go, right? And that plague was the death of the firstborn, where the firstborn in every household in Egypt would die. But God made a provision. He made a provision to protect the firstborn, and here's how it played out. He told his people, he said, listen, every firstborn in Egypt is going to die on this night. Unless, unless you take a lamb and you sacrifice that lamb and you spread the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of your home. If you do this, if you sacrifice a lamb and you spread the blood over the doorposts, when, 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 the, when the death comes over, over Egypt, your home will be passed over. And that's why this holiday, this feast in Israel is called the Passover, because it was a, a feast to remember how God rescued his people. Yeah. He didn't want him to forget. He didn't want him to forget not only that he rescued them. That, that's part of it. That's part of it. That's looking back on what he did. But more than that, God didn't want them to forget the sacrifice that was made in conjunction with their deliverance. You know, God didn't want them to forget that, that something had to die in order for them to be saved, that blood had to be shed in order for them to be saved. Now, for them, growing up through the years, as, as they're remembering the Passover year after year after year, they're remembering the sacrifice, they're remembering the lamb, they're remembering all of that and how God delivered them. What they didn't see looking forward to Jesus, we can see clearly now looking back, can't we? That the whole time, the whole time, God had a heart for his people to recognize that one day his son would be sacrificed in conjunction with everyone's deliverance. His blood had to be sacrificed to set us free. And that's what the point of the Passover is all about. John the Baptist will refer to Jesus as the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Joseph and Mary, you know, being faithful Jews, they made this pilgrimage from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with their 12-year-old son, Jesus. And as a family, they, they traveled roughly 80 miles from, from, from up in Galilee, a climb and a journey that would take about three to four days to complete because the average 
distance that they would travel would be about 20 miles per day. Little, little did Joseph and Mary realize that the feast, the feast that they were going up to celebrate in Jerusalem, the feast of the Passover, was a feast that was going to point forward to an event that would take place with their son some 21 years later. They had no idea. I really don't think that Mary and Joseph traveling with Jesus, their 12-year-old boy walking beside them was the lamb that was going up with them to celebrate the Passover that was pointing forward to what he would accomplish. One more thing about this, this trip, this journey that Joseph and Mary are making with Jesus. Luke tells us that, that Jesus was 12 years old, 12 years old. According to the early rabbinic traditions, Jewish boys were considered to be adults when they turned 13. They had higher expectations of their, their children than apparently we do, right? At the age of 13, all Jewish boys were considered responsible for following the Lord's commandments. Today, in the Jewish community, this is a milestone that is uh, celebrated in a ceremony called a bar mitzvah. How many people have you heard of the bar mitzvah? Have you ever seen one? Have you ever, ever seen a bar mitzvah celebration? Uh, Dr. Delancey, who, who I traveled to Israel with uh, a couple months ago, was, was in Jerusalem at the, at the, uh, the Wailing Wall uh, on the day of, of, of bar mitzvah. There were several boys who were having their bar mitzvah that day. And man, what an amazing celebration to watch. He videotaped. I should have played it for you today. Uh, you would have liked that. But a bar mitzvah was, was a huge celebration. It is a huge celebration in, in Jewish families. And the word bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. If the child is a girl today, they call it a bat mitzvah, a daughter of the commandment. And this celebration signifies that this young man or this young woman is now ready and capable of observing the obligations of God's commandments, that they are also considered to be full members of the Jewish community. So when we picture Mary and Joseph and, and, and the boy Jesus going up to Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Passover, we need to remember that he's not a kid. He's not like just a little kid. He's one year away from being considered as an adult in the community. So Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they, they've now traveled up to Nazareth. And Luke doesn't tell us really what happened during that week there. He doesn't write about it. Um, but they've been there for probably about a week now, celebrating all the commands with the Passover, fe uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and first fruits. And now they're ready to head back to their home in Nazareth. And in verse 43, we read, when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Luke doesn't say it, but... There's a word that, like, over this entire section that I, that I like to put on there, panic. You know, like, can you imagine? I mean, can you even begin to imagine? Joseph and Mary have traveled 20 or so miles away from Jerusalem. They've gone down the hill from Jerusalem, climbing down. I, by the way, I would be mad, mad at Jesus for that reason alone. I climbed down. I have to go back up. 20 miles uphill to go find my boy. But they get 20 miles away, and then they realize, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. You've got to be kidding me. We lost the Messiah. This is like, this is unbelievable. How about a quick show of hands? How many of you, be honest, how many of you have ever misplaced your children and had to go back and look for them? Look around. Look around. I want you to notice whose hand is not up, okay? My hands are down. 
This is hilarious. So I, I, I went to my boys this week. I said, hey, hey, Jordan, hey, Connor. I said, dumb. I'm pretty sure we've done this because I, I'm absent-minded enough to do this. But can, can you remember a time maybe like growing up where mom and I left you at church or we left you somewhere and we had to go back and pick you up? Like we totally forgot you. We just took off. And they're like, no, I don't think so. I was like, really? I mean, I, I expected that I probably would have done that. You know, it just seems like something I would do. And it's easy to happen, right? Because, well, think about it. My, a lot of Sundays, my wife and I come in separate cars. We come to church on a Sunday morning, and she's got her car, I got my car, and we come, and it would be easy to assume that, well, I thought you had them, and uh, you, okay, it could happen. But I said, wow, that's crazy. I'm really surprised. And they said, well, why do you ask? I said, well, because I'm preaching this week on, you know, Mary and Joseph. They forgot Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. And one of my sons said, well, that just means that you're a better parent than Mary and Joseph. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Wow. That's awesome. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, but I appreciate that vote of confidence. You know, wow. Hey, that's pretty awesome. When your kids look at you and say, you're a better parent than the parents of Jesus. That's awesome. Wow. Now I got to talk to him about lying, but whatever. <laughs> so, man, but can you imagine um, just the, the anxiety that must have come over Mary and Joseph? When I was about seven years old, I, I think I was around seven, maybe eight, maybe six. I don't know. I was young, okay? And my parents, they owned, they owned uh, one vehicle because they couldn't afford two. So, and we had this really awesome white station wagon. It was, don't you wish station wagons would come back? They were so cool. I guess the closest thing is like what? Like a Subaru? Subarus are kind of have that sort of design, right? But they look cooler now. Well, anyway, my parents had a white station wagon. And one of the things that my, my, my brother and I loved to do, my younger brother, he's two years younger than me, is uh, there were certain days where my mom had to drive my dad to work because she needed to use the car for the day. And so uh, at the end of the day, my mom would load me and my brother up and we'd go pick up dad at work. And one of the things that we loved to do is we loved to hide in the back of the station wagon when dad would come out of work, out of the office, he'd come, he'd open the passenger side door, climb in the car, and mom would say hello, he'd say hello, and we would wait and see how long it would take him to wonder where we were. You know, like, where, where, where are Chris and Joe? Where are they? Well, we would wait, and my mom was awesome. She would play along with this, okay? She would totally be like, he'd be like, where, where are the boys? And she'd say, oh, he said, oh they're, they're with grandma, or they're, they're with a friend, or something like that. So yes, she lied. Um, man, a lot of lying in the Blanche family, apparently. So... So anyway, she went along with it, and we thought that was really cool for her to do. And then once he was convinced that we weren't there, we would wait for just the right time, and we would jump up in the back and be like, hey, we're here, surprise. And, um, and we thought that was great. Uh, it, looking back, it's probably not as cool as it felt like as a kid. It was awesome. We loved it. And I'm even saying that now, I also recognize that, that kids are, in this generation will never experience it because they have to be buckled in. I think you have to be, don't you have to be in a car seat till you're like 18 now? It's, it's something, something like that. But no, we used to ride in the back of pickup trucks. We used to ride, lay down on the back floor of the car. Um, yeah, life was good back then. <laughs> so anyway, this is something we love to do. Well, well, one day, my brother came up with this awesome twist on the plan. And, and what it was is my dad... My mom didn't need the car for the day, so my dad was going to just go to work. And so my brother decided, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sneak into the car before dad goes to work. So while mom and dad are getting lunch packed up or whatever they're doing to get ready to say you know, goodbye to dad for the day, my brother sneaks out and he climbs into the back of the car and lays down. My dad walks out the door, gets in the car, turns it on, drives to work. My mom starts walking around the house looking for her son. Where is he? And she searched everywhere. And, you know, we love to hide in our parents. So she's like, he's hiding here somewhere. I know he is. So she's checking under bed. She's checking all over the house. She checked in the barn. She called the neighbors. She's like, where is my son? He's nowhere. I can't find him anywhere. And then she's like, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Now, there's no cell phone, so you can't just call dad and say, hey, dad. <laughs> is he in the back of the car? No, so she has to wait. So she has to leave a message at the office. So when my dad gets to the office, he's got a message to call home. He calls home. He said, could you do me a favor? Could you go back out to the car and check and see if our son is in the back of the car? He, what? <laughs> sure enough, my dad goes down to the car, and there's my brother sitting in the back of the car. He's got a big grin on his face like he has accomplished the best. 
thing ever. I'm not so sure that they saw it that way, you know? I'm not so sure that they felt the same. So, you know, as a parent, as a parent, there, there aren't too many things that are more terrifying than not knowing where your kids are, right? Losing your child. All, all the fears and, and the panic that would set in when you don't know where they are. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine how Mary and Joseph must have felt in that moment? Where is Jesus? We have lost the Son of God. Now, before you get the wrong idea about Mary and Joseph, like they're bad parents, they're irresponsible parents, listen, this was easy to happen then, as easy as it is for it to happen today. You see, when families traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, they would typically travel in large caravans, hundreds and hundreds of people traveling together to go up to Jerusalem for the feast. So they would travel with other friends and relatives from their village and other villages nearby, and they would, they would make their way up together to, to celebrate. And the reason they traveled together was because there was a constant threat um, and danger on some of these roads leading up to Jerusalem. That's why we have stories like the Good Samaritan, right? You know, where the guy gets beat up and robbed as he's traveling alone on the roads down near Jericho. That was real. That was a real threat. In fact, it's still a real threat today. You don't want to be traveling on those roads alone. It's very easy for someone, a robber or somebody to be hiding behind, you know, a crag in the rocks and to come out and, and, and you know, catch an, uh, an unsuspecting traveler. There was safety in numbers. And some commentators suggest that in these caravans, typically, that the, that the women and the children would would, would travel together near the front of the caravan, while men uh, would travel and, and bring up the rear. They would come from the back. And if that's true, if that's true, then, then that means that Mary, near the front with the other women and children, could have assumed that Jesus was in the back with, with Joseph traveling. And then Joseph, in the back, could have thought, well, Jesus is probably up front with Mary and the other children traveling. And it's not until they got to the stopping place for the night that they would look around and be like, hey, Mary, where, where's Jesus? Oh, I thought he was with you. Not with me. Oh, he must be with somebody else. Maybe he's with other you know, members of our, our caravan, other friends or family. So they go looking for him. That's what the text says, right? They go looking for him amongst the other relatives. And they didn't find him. Now, some commentators, on the other hand, disagree. They say, no, 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 that is imposing a modern understanding of how caravans and nomadic people travel today. That in that day, they say, no, no, I don't think they were traveling women in the front and men in the back, that they were traveling together. But because of Jesus's age, at 12 years old, he could freely move about within the caravan, hanging out with other youth his own age and, and visiting with other people. And it was a large group. And it's, again, it's not until they stop for the night that they realize that their son is missing. 20 miles behind them, they realize that he's gone. So what do they do? Well, they do what any, um, any parent would do in this situation, right? They, they immediately, they separate from the safety of the group, and they decide to go back to Jerusalem to find their son. I can't even imagine. I, really, I, I cannot imagine how stressful a, a day's journey that must have been for, for Mary and Joseph as they made their way back to Jerusalem, looking around all along the way, hoping and praying that Jesus is safe. Of course, Mary and Joseph are a godly couple, so they don't behave like any of us. You know, there was no blaming going on amongst them, right? <laughs> There's no way that Mary looked at Joseph and said, this is all your fault, you know? Or Joseph said, Mary, I thought you were what? No, that, they wouldn't have done that, of course. We do that, but they wouldn't. Well, verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So it's been three days, three days. A better understanding of this might be like on the third day. That's when they found him. So a day that they traveled away from Jerusalem, they traveled for a full day away, set up camp for the night. It's now dark. They got to wait till morning 
They travel back for a day. Now they've traveled 40 miles. And then they spent the better part of a day looking for Jesus at all of his favorite spots, you know? Maybe they went to the market, said, you know, he loves the falafel over at uh, Shlomo's place over here, right? <laughs> he loves that place. So let's, let's check there first. He wasn't there. So then they go to the Mount of Olives, right? He's not there. Maybe he's at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus loves to go and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. I bet that's where he is. He's not there. Finally, they find him, and it turns out he was at one of his favorite spots, wasn't he? It's where they should have gone first. At least Jesus thought so. He thought they should have gone here first to look for him. He was in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. You know, while Joseph and Mary are busy looking all over Jerusalem for their son, they're worried sick about their boy. Jesus is hanging out with some of the leading teachers in Jerusalem. It was very common at this time when, when they had the feast for, for the teachers who were all there to gather together and they would have deep theological discussions and, and talk about interpretations of the scriptures and they would gather together there at the temple. And Luke says that Jesus was sitting among the teachers. Just try to picture that scene for a moment. Joseph and Mary, they, they arrive at the temple and there he is. There he is. He's surrounded by the religious leaders of the day. He's listening carefully as they discuss matters of theology, but he's not just listening. He is listening, but he's not just listening. He's asking questions, questions that no doubt were made to make those teachers think deeper about things that they assumed they understood. And he's not just listening. He's not just asking questions, but they said they, they were amazed by his answers. So he was answering questions from them as well. Luke says that everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Literally, these guys were blown away. They were blown away. These teachers were in awe as they talked with Jesus. He, he was engaging with them. He was asking questions and providing insight and answers of his own. They were stunned. They had never seen a 12-year-old boy with such a depth of knowledge and understanding. When I was reading that, I couldn't help but just think about one of the things that I love most about so many of the young people here in our church family is I love the way that even at a young age, so many of our youth enjoy sitting and studying God's word with adults in the church. I love that. I love that. Some, some kids as young as 10 years old, I see some in here right now that are younger than 10 who are sitting in here right now listening to the teaching from God's word. I love that. I love that so many of our students are in, involved in not just youth group on Sundays with their peers, which is wonderful, but many of them are involved in small groups. They're not just going to the small groups, but they are participating in the small groups. They're asking questions and they're reading the Bible together with adults and, and they're learning from the adults and the adults are learning from them. I love that. I love that. Such an incredible way for young people to grow in their knowledge of God and their relationship with Jesus and with each other. Well, Mary and Joseph... They find Jesus, and in verse 48, we begin to read, and, and we, we see that Mary responded just the way you might expect her to, right? When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. They were in panic, weren't they? Totally. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. You know, Mary's response is exactly what we'd expect, right? You know this response really, really well. No doubt she is filled with, with relief and joy, right? You gotta be happy, right? In that moment, like, whew, 
he's alive, but not for long, <laughs> right? Right? She, she, she's relieved, but in one moment, she's like, you are going to get it, boy. Do you have any idea what you've put your father and I through? Do you have any idea? Man, we've been worried sick about you. Not to, not to mention the fact that my feet are killing me because I had to climb 20 miles back here to find you. You're going to carry me back down that hill, boy. That's what's going to happen, right? No, Mary's relieved, but she's upset. She's upset. Look, what, did, what have you done, Jesus? Why did you do this to us? But I'm so glad that she asked the questions that she did. Because in verse 49 we get to read the very first recorded words of Jesus. These are the first words that are recorded that came out of the mouth of Jesus, our Savior. I would say that this verse captures the, the entire point of this story. When God put it on Luke's heart to include this story, I believe that this is the reason why. I think that Luke wrote this down because God wanted you and I and every reader of the Gospel of Luke to understand that at the age of 12, Jesus knew who he was, that he is the Son of God, Amen. and he knew it. And not only that, he knew that he must be about his father's business. He, he must do what the Lord is calling him to do. He understood why he was here. So Mary looks at Jesus, and she says, your father and I, who's she talking about? She's referring to her and Joseph. We've been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus uses this moment to gently remind his mother of who he truly is. Jesus reminds Mary and Joseph of something that they had already been told. They've been told by the angel, right? It had been confirmed by the shepherds. It had been confirmed by, by Simeon and Anna, and now here, 12 years later, Jesus is now confirming it to them again, reminding them of who he truly is. You see, while Joseph is clearly his adoptive father, he is. Is it wrong that, jo that Mary referred to Joseph as his father? Not at all. He is the adoptive father of Jesus. That's fine. It's, she didn't say anything wrong. But Jesus uses this moment to remind his mom that, Mom, I'm more than just the adopted son of Joseph. Don't forget, Mom, that I am the son of God. He's my father. And I must be about his business. I have a very special, a very unique relationship with God the Father, and I have a very unique and special calling from him. Mary says, look at what you've put your father and I through. And Jesus says, Mom, I've been with my father the whole time. I've been with my father. You should have known. You should have known that this is where I'd be. At 12 years old, Jesus already understood his unique, personal, and intimate relationship with God the Father. Jesus is there at the temple, and he looks around at this place, and he's like, this is my father's house. This is my dad's place. Not the pizza shop in Jay. <laughs> my dad's place. No, this is my father's house. This, everything you see here, it's all about my father. The place where people gather to worship God, it's my dad. This is my father. This is my father's house. And by the way, just because of Jesus and what he did by dying on the cross in our place, we have become, according to the Bible, the adopted sons and daughters of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Because of Jesus, I can say, he's my father too. 
He's my father. Is he your father? Amen. Amen. That's because of Jesus. Jesus not only knows who he is, but he also knows why he's here. He said, I must be in my father's house. Even at the age of 12, Jesus understood that he was here to do the will of his father. And throughout his ministry, Jesus stated over and over and over again that he was here to do the will of the father. From start to finish, here we see it here at the beginning at age 12, and we're going to see it all the way through, all the way to the end, right when he's in the garden. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 5, he said, I can do nothing on my own, but as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I love that. One of my favorite ones is, is from John chapter 4. You remember when Jesus meets with the woman at the well? right? And he hasn't eaten for quite a while. So his disciples come up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, man, you must be starving. Jesus, you need to eat something. No, seriously, you got to eat. You need to eat. And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, Jesus did eat food. We know that. But what's he saying here? He's saying, you want to know what keeps me going, boys? You want to know what keeps me getting up every morning? Doing the will of him who sent me. That's what sustains me. That's what keeps me going. Jesus was consumed with a hunger and thirst for the things of God. He looks at his mom and he says, Mom, I had to be here. I must be here. This is my mission. I must be in my father's house. You know, we need to... Remember that too, right? We need to remember that too. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for me and it's my prayer for you that we would be consumed with a hunger and thirst to be children of God who are consumed with his mission, consumed with it. Jesus knew who he was and he knew why he was here and we should too. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have, if you have said, yes, I wanna follow Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, that means that you are a child of God. That's who you are. But why are you here? Why are you here? Is it to do your own will? Oh, good. <laughs> At least one person knows the answer. <laughs> Obviously not, right? We are here for the very, very same reason that Jesus is here. We're not here to die for the sins of the world, but we are here to do the will of the Father. God's will for Jesus was to die for the sins of the world. What's his will for you? His will for you is to go and make other disciples. That's the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he left. He said, go and make other disciples. That's what you're here for. That is his will for your life. Well, in verse 50, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Even after everything that they've experienced up to this point, they'd, they'd experienced a lot, wouldn't you say? They've had some pretty unique encounters like with angels and stuff, right? But they still struggled. They still struggled to fully comprehend and to, to understand the fullness of who their son is. They, they struggled to understand and fully grasp, you know, what is the mission that, that God the Father has for our son here on earth? It was something that developed with them over time as well, right? That's why we keep reading that Mary continued to ponder these things in her heart. She's growing in her understanding of who her son is and why he's here. You know, the disciples were the same way, right? Remember? Like, the disciples, like, Jesus is like, man, you still don't get it? <laughs> you still don't understand? After everything you've seen, you still don't quite get it, do you? Oh, you silly disciples, you know? <laughs> and we're the same way, Right? We're all on this journey. We're all growing and in, in, in getting more and more understanding about who God is and, and what his plan is for our lives. And don't beat yourself up for where you're at. Just, just dig in and decide to grow. Dig in and decide to know him better and understand him better and understand his will for your life better. Make it your, make it your goal each day to say, God, I want to live my life a little more surrendered to your will today than I did yesterday. I just want to do that. You know, I want to grow.
Well, in verses 51 and 52, Luke wraps up the whole infancy and childhood narratives by saying this. And he, talking about Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus left Jerusalem. He went back to Nazareth with his parents where he respected them. He submitted to them. And under their care, we read that Jesus continued to grow. He's not done growing yet, is he? He's not done growing. He's going to continue to grow in stature, but he's also going to continue to grow in his understanding, in his wisdom. And the next time we see him, man, Jesus is going to be 18 years older than he is in, in this passage. And his growth is going to be noticeable. He, he, he's going to wow the people. They're going to hear him teach, and they're like, we have never heard anybody teach like this guy. There, he is so different than all the other scribes that we're used to. Jesus continued to, to amaze the people. But at the age of 12, the age of 12, Jesus already had a solid understanding of who he is and why he was here. He's the son of God, and he is here to do the will of the Father. And that's it for the childhood and, and infancy narratives about Jesus. Again, next time in chapter three, Jesus will be 30 years old. 30 years old. It's going to be the day of his baptism. Exciting day. And uh, the words, the words that Jesus spoke in this passage, Jesus said, he is my father. Mom, listen, don't forget, I may be your son, but ultimately, and most importantly, I am the son of God, the father. He said, that's my dad. When we turn the page to chapter three and the next time together, God the Father is gonna speak from heaven and God the Father is gonna look and say, and you are my beloved son. You're my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Pretty awesome stuff. And for the rest of the gospel of Luke, we're gonna see how Jesus lived out the purposes and the plans that God had for him in his time here on the earth. It's going to be awesome. You looking forward to it? Me too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. What an incredible gift it is that, that we can open these pages and we can learn about your son, Jesus. And even at the age of 12 years old, he had so much to teach us and the people around him about what it looks like to know who you are and to know why you're here. And God, I pray that as we leave this place today, that we would all walk out of here with a deeper sense of, of, of the amazing privilege we have to be called your children. And God, we would all walk out of here with a deeper desire to live our lives fully submitted to you and to your will. You have great plans for our lives, God. I pray that we would walk in them today, tomorrow, and the next day. And for as long as we're here, God, that, that we, with Jesus, could say, it's not my will, but his will that I'm living for. Help us, Lord, to grow and to become more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's his, his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.